Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Your Longevity Blueprint podcast this past year. I sincerely appreciate your support sharing this content across the globe. I'm taking a much needed break between seasons one and two of the podcast. So over the next four weeks, I'll be sharing four of the most popular episodes from season one again. I can't wait to kick off season two with some absolute powerhouse guests, starting with Dr. Brian Stenzler, who will be sharing five keys to raising healthy kids, which will be launching July 21st. Please stay tuned and take this time to go back and listen to an episode that you missed from season one. When people are putting meals together during their feeding window, if they don't get enough protein in, but they're not getting enough healthy fats and they can, you know, they're, they're having trouble sleeping, their energy is poor. And so there's a lot of variables that can impact how quickly people are able to open up that window. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Cynthia Thurlow, who is an expert in intermittent fasting and actually is another nurse practitioner. In this episode, I'm going to talk to her all about intermittent fasting, what it is, what foods you should eat to break the fast, when to exercise, when to take supplements, and if this should be used long term. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Longevity Blueprint podcast. Today I have Cynthia Thurlow, and she is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting, highly sought after speaker and CEO and founder of the Everyday Wellness Podcast. She's been a nurse practitioner for 20 plus years, is a two-time TEDx speaker. Her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed nearly 6 million times. She's been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, and in Medium and Entrepreneur. She's also the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which was listed as 20 podcasts that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine. So welcome to the show, Cynthia. Thanks so much for having me. I was just saying how nice it is to be interviewed by another NP. I'm like, go NPs. Yes, yes, yes. So tell us your story. How did you get interested in intermittent fasting? Tell us about your background in nursing and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. So I started as an ER nurse in inner city Baltimore and I'm a total adrenaline junkie. And so that was a really amazing experience to have had. But when I became a nurse practitioner, I wanted to pivot. I wanted to kind of get out of the ER and fell into cardiology. So I always tell people cardiology was my first medical love. I love everything about the heart, fascinated by the heart. And I love the fact that it kind of took my love for being an adrenaline junkie and kind of allowed me to kind of elevate into a specialty. And so I did that for 16 years, but I would say when I became a parent, that's when I started looking a little bit differently at how uh, our, the choices we make in terms of nutrition mm-hmm. can have a tremendous benefit on health and wellness. And so my oldest, who will be 15 in August, hard to believe, developed horrible eczema when he was about four months old. And so I was exclusively breastfeeding. And I remember saying to the pediatrician, could it be something I'm eating? And I had a pretty healthy diet. So I was genuinely concerned about that. They said, no, just, you know, do, you know, put these high potency topical corticosteroids on his skin and just, you know, do these baths. They had this whole bath ritual they wanted us to do. And, you know, despite doing all the things, his eczema never really got much better. I mean, he had significant eczema his entire first year of his life. And so when I finally got him in to see the allergist and we were stunned to see he had life-threatening food allergies, Um, that really spun my head. It made me paranoid to eat out, uh, which is something that, you know, my husband and I were foodies in our younger, younger ages. 
maybe paranoid to eat out, maybe feel fearful of taking him to a restaurant in case he was, you know, exposed to something he was allergic to. And so down the rabbit hole, I went of really determining, you know, I knew that I intellectually needed to do something beyond what I was doing. And at the time I did my nurse practitioner program was very different. We were masters prepared. There was no doctoral level. It's obviously a little bit different than, than way the way most nurse practitioners are schooled now. And so I, I applied to a doctoral program and took one class and that wasn't it. And then I remember I did a wellness coaching program. Nope, that wasn't it. And then I kind of fell into a nutrition program and that opened up my, my eyes. There were out of 30 of us, there were five healthcare providers. And so I really found that for me, it all starts with food. And, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden I started to feel like my whole world had opened up. And instead of just writing prescriptions, which in cardiology, that's a lot of what we do. Uh, and I was still towing the party line when I was at work because we had people who had established disease. We weren't in the process of looking at prevention and, you know, God help you if you already had, you know, a chronic disease, we were dealing with it in that way. But I, you know, my N of one became my N of 10 became my N of 20, really starting to look very closely at when I would suggest to patients, let's pull out gluten or let's try to eat less processed or let's find another option for your favorite food, all these tantalizing, highly addictive, highly processed foods. When I could get patients to buy into removing them from their diets, all of a sudden they started getting healthier. And then I really got to a point where I felt like, you know, when I went to work, I was hundred percent committed to the medical model I worked in. I, I want to be very clear about that. And there's absolutely positively a role for traditional perspectives on, um, you know, urgent and emergent care. Uh, but I think we could do a much better job with prevention and chronic disease management. And so I took a leap of faith four years ago and uh, left clinical medicine and then started initially at the time, nurse practitioners weren't able to be autonomous. So it really was just, a, I was working as a nutritionist, which I could do in the state that I reside in with a really strong emphasis on, uh, ironically enough, looking at, you know, uh, healthy aging and uh, the chronic symptoms that people were coming to me with and, and women in middle age, you know, late thirties, early forties were coming to me with poor sleep, weight gain, uh, developing food sensitivities, having no energy, just being exhausted and feeling like they had lost their kind of inner goddess. And so unknowingly, I kind of fell into another rabbit hole of dealing with healthy aging. And, and part of that uh, stemmed from a desire for people to, you know, stop kind of embracing these limiting beliefs. I'm, I'm all about mindset. I think that's really critical. And we don't do not enough of that with our patients. And quite honestly, now I have the opportunity to be able to do that. I can spend the time right. really counseling people on all the lifestyle pieces and the nutrition piece, which I think are absolutely critical. And, you know, now NPs in my state can function autonomously, which is really nice. So every once in a while, if I have to, I can write a prescription um, or call them into a pharmacy. And then I work with a lot of other healthcare providers, MDs, PAs, NPs, uh, to really help support patients in, in really unique and different ways. So I feel very, very fortunate, really blessed and, um, you know, pivoting again. That's what I think, you know, we're all about evolving, shifting and changing as we become more mature. And so this is just my next, my next thing that I'm doing. So that's how, that's a little nutshell of how I got to where I am. So along your journey of kind of being sick of writing these prescriptions and finding out nutrition is just so helpful and can be very powerful for patients, uh, you landed on intermittent fasting, I presume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So since you're the expert, I want to get into this. So tell us what intermittent fasting is and maybe mm-hmm. time-restricted eating as well and how that can impact our health and longevity. 
Yeah. So it was probably five years ago. And it, ironically, it was like three people had talked to me about intermittent fasting in a week. And in my typical fashion, I was like, well, that's contrary to everything I was ever taught, anything I've ever told a patient. And so I went and bought a book and really dove into it and started practicing it and started to realize like, gosh, my sleep is better. I have more energy. I'm not having energy slumps. This is really onto something. And so, you know, my, my end of one became something I was discussing with my female patients, became things I was sharing with friends and family. And so I think the easiest way to talk about intermittent fasting is to talk about the fact that it's really less eating and, and more, more time where you're in a fasted state. So the easiest way to explain it is to say that you skip your breakfast and maybe the night before you ate at six o'clock and the following day you ate your breakfast at eight, you've already fasted 14 hours. So it's really not designed to be scary. It's designed to be very straightforward. You either exist in a fasted or a fed state, that's it. And when our insulin levels are low, like they are when we're fasted, that's when we typically will see a lot of the physiological uh, benefits. And so low fasting insulin is what provides mental clarity. Once people are fat adapted, uh, most of us are considered to be sugar burners, which means that our bodies tap into glucose as a primary fuel source. And that's actually the antithesis of the way our bodies are designed to be optimal. And so if you think back to ancestral health perspectives or before there was refrigeration and grocery stores that have all this junk this highly processed, highly excitotoxin type foods, people really did have to, you know, they would go out and hunt. They mm -hmm. would, you know, have a, a feast and then they might not eat for a couple of days or they might not eat for a couple of days and they might just have like twigs and bark and berries. And so that, that fasted state is when we really tap into all these really cool mechanisms. And that's really where a lot of the benefits are conferred. So when people first start off, they're curious a lot of people come to intermittent fasting because they are curious and, and they want to lose weight. Uh, but what most people do is they'll stay for all the other benefits that they find. And, and, you know, fasting for many people becomes not only a physical, but also an emotional, spiritual uh, process and strategy. And so in a very brief kind of succinct way, it is a way to tap into the way that our bodies are designed to function but we've forgotten this in our very modernized, you know, westernized, and I will coin a term that is used by um, a good friend, Ben Azadi says, the stupid American diet, which I can't agree with him more, that most of us have bought into this diet where we eat all day long, we eat many meals, we stoke that insulin release all day long and wonder why we are obese and sick. So I, I think intermittent fasting in many ways can be a strategy that people can use throughout their lifetime and have some control. I think for many of us that are healthcare providers, our patients feel powerless. And so this is a way that people can kind of tap back into their innate wisdom and tap back into what true intrinsic hunger feels like. Again, something that a lot of us have forgotten what that feels like. It scares people at first. They're like, I'm not comfortable listening to my stomach growl. And I'm like, oh, it's very cyclical. So if you, you know, kind of suppress that and do something to keep your body or keep your brain focused on something else It will, it'll cycle through again, but it's just a physiologic noise. It doesn't mean that you're in duress. It doesn't mean that you're in trouble. And so that's, that's how I typically like to start the conversation. Awesome. So speaking of weight loss, whenever I think fasting, I know one of the first questions that my patients ask me is, okay, if I, if I'm fasting, can I exercise? So I would assume the greatest benefit for weight loss, which is what brings many patients to intermittent fasting, <laughs> would come from exercising in a fasted state. Is that correct? 
Like first yes. thing in the morning, if, if you did the fast that you suggested, then yes. first thing in the morning or exercising as late as you can before you eat <laughs> would Correct. be beneficial. Is that Correct. Yes. And so once someone is fat adapted, once their body is tapped into those mechanisms where their body uses fat as a fuel source as opposed to sugar, it's not so scary. I think people are terrified because we've been conditioned to believe that we have to eat before exercise and immediately afterwards. And I used to be that person. I would drink a protein shake going to the gym at five o'clock in the morning and I would drink one while I was showering. And then I would have a mini meal before I started seeing patients. And I think about that now, I'm like, I was traveling around with all these containers of stuff. And now it's so effortless because I go to the gym with water. I come home and I might have green tea. You know, I might do a couple hours of work and then I eat around lunchtime. It's so much easier. And, you know, once you, you have, your body is efficient with using fat as a primary fuel source, you have so much mental clarity and so much energy. It makes it, it's just, it's one less thing to worry about. Like I always say to people, like, you're going to save money on groceries because you're not buying as much food. Now, not if you live in my house because I have teenage boys, but you know, in most instances, there are a lot of savings in many ways that you'll experience. Sure. I want to get into the benefits that you were mentioning. You said, mm-hmm. I like what you said. You said patients come to intermittent fasting mm-hmm. for the weight loss, but they stay for the anti-aging, the long-term benefits. Yeah. So one of those being um, improving autophagy. Do you want to speak mm-hmm. a little bit to what that is and how fasting yes. helps induce that? Yeah. So autophagy is this very interesting principle that goes on in our bodies. And so when we're only when we're fasted, not while we're eating, when we are fasted, our body is allowing us to get rid of these diseased and disordered cells. So I always remind people, it's kind of like taking out the trash. And so the longer you fast, the more autophagy will be induced. And there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of speculation. When does that start happening? And I, and I have to remind people, even if you're fasting just for 12 hours, you're still doing things beneficial for your body. But I think the important point to make is that if you're fasting for 16, 18, 20 hours, you're still tapping into some of that. It really starts to uptick when you hit that 24-hour mark. But if anyone that's listening, you're really trying to wrap your head around, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? I'm not a scientist. I always remind people, you are taking out the trash. So the cells that we don't want to use in our bodies this is the time that this happens. And so really, really critical when we're thinking about, you know, we're still in this COVID situation. Uh, we're still dealing with, um, you know, the threat of, you know, persistent uptick in disease, which I'll cross my fingers. We're heading into phase three in, in the area of the country that I live into. I'll just cross my fingers that the cases remain, continue to go down. But really important for us to be thinking about the benefits that extend beyond the, the autophagy piece. But it's the one really big scientific principle that when people have a big takeaway, they're like, oh, I understand that. So, you know, a cell that could potentially have developed into cancer, potentially precancerous, would then be scavenged up by the body and you get rid of it. And so that, that waste recycling process is probably the easiest way to kind of tip into it. Uh, is really an important one for people to understand. So it's not just about weight loss. It's not just about uh, people thinking about all these benefits they get. I get more, you know, fat burning potential because I'm exercising fasted and I remind them it's a lot more than that. It really, really is. So how would one start with intermittent fasting? So you suggested maybe just examine your diet to start with Mm -hmm. maybe eating 12 hours and then not eating 12 hours. And then do they extend out from there to 13 hours? And what, what do you recommend? Well, I think it really depends. You know, for some people, they're already fasting 14 hours. So I'll say to them, hey, 
for some people, they're more comfortable doing it in 30 minute increments, meaning if they were doing 14 hours fast, and maybe they go to 14 hours, 30 minutes for sure. a couple of days and then extend to 15 hours. So slow and steady wins. I remind people you don't get a prize if you go from 12 hours to 18 hours and you suffer for three hours to get through that. So yes, so I always suggest wherever you are and wherever you are is perfectly perfect. Um, whether it's 12 hours that you're already fasting, aim for 13. If you're already doing 14, aim for 15. Uh, you know, some of the clues that let you know if your body's ready to move on to another 30 or 60 minute interval, your energy is good. You have lots of mental clarity. Uh, you're not dealing with significant food cravings. Some people will really push, you know, they get close to 15 and then they want to push to 18. Like they put their foot on the accelerator and they want to push to 18 hours and then they break their fast and they eat everything in their kitchen. And then I'm like, okay, that's a sign that you waited too long and that's okay. And for some people, they may never get to more than 16 hours and that is totally okay. I think it's really important to say that, you know, men seem to have an easier time with intermittent fasting in the sense that their hormones are relatively stable throughout the mm -hmm. month. It's women that are still cycling where we have to kind of tweak and ebb and flow to make sure that we are um, honoring our bodies and honoring the cycles that go on throughout the month. If someone's in menopause, perimenopause, it's another set of things that I usually will focus on. But just acknowledging that women as a whole, we have to be a little bit more conscientious, a little bit more attuned, a little bit more flexible with our bodies, um, especially as women are getting older. And I see a lot of people come to intermittent fasting because they're like, oh, it's the panacea. It's going to fix everything. And I just remind them it's one strategy amongst mm -hmm. many others that they need to think about. But yeah, so starting off with a window. And here's the other thing is that if you really want to get the benefits of intermittent fasting, you may want to take a week or two to really clean up your diet. And by that, I mean, you know, eating less processed, eating more nutrient dense foods, really focusing on protein and healthy fats with your meals and adding in carbohydrates if you tolerate them. I think that's a good first step because you're going to get more from intermittent fasting if you're not on a standard American diet. You're going to get more from intermittent fasting if you're mindful of your carbohydrate intake. Does that mean that every single person who does intermittent fasting should be low carb? No. Uh, but it does mean that most of us eat way more carbohydrates than our body needs. And so we want to be mindful, truly mindful of the types of foods that we're consuming while fasted. That's, or sorry, during our feeding winter while, while fasting. <laughs> sure, sure. So that led me to a couple other questions. So going back to how female hormones do fluctuate throughout the month, I would probably recommend a woman not start intermittent fasting the month she's cycling <laughs> or the week she's cycling. <laughs> that might be more difficult for her to get yes. started. But many of us are already unknowingly intermittent fasting to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. So um, do you recommend as far as extending out that time to fasting for another half an hour or hour, like every day, every week, how slowly should someone increase the fasted hours? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a great question. A lot of it comes down to the individual. So some people are going to be able to push. So if you're more carb dependent, this is my end of like 100. Uh, if you're more carb dependent, it's going to take you longer to transition from being a sugar to a fat burner. So those people may take longer to get to a point where they're fasting for an extended period. So if you know that you eat a, a very carbohydrate heavy diet, it may take you longer to be able to go from 12 hours to 16 hours. Whereas someone who's doing a bit more protein and, and fats may find that it's a little bit easier for their body to be metabolically flexible. That's really a phrase that I like to use quite a bit. Uh, we want to be our bodies to be as flexible as possible. So there's no hard and fast rules. A lot of it is highly bio-individual, meaning if I took 10 women 
And if they ate a very similar diet, I would say probably half will be able to open that window, you know, every couple of days, meaning every two or three days, maybe they go 30 minutes longer, an hour longer. Um, Other people, it may take them anywhere from two to six weeks. So uh, this is where I say slow and steady wins. You know, you're not in a race. You don't get a medal. If you, you know, go from like 12 hours to 18 hours effortlessly, that is not the norm. Most people can't do that. They don't feel good. And uh, I remind people that it's really, really critical that while you're making that transition, that you're attuned to how your body feels. Your body will let you know, are you getting headaches? Are you dizzy? Are you hydrating properly? And then there's a whole slew of tips that go along with that as well. But, and are you giving your body the food it needs during your feeding window? Because some people buy a byproduct of, if you look at statistically how most uh, most individuals eat, they don't eat enough protein in their diet. And that's like the most important macronutrient in my, my humble opinion. And so when people are putting meals together during their feeding window, if they don't get enough protein in, but they're not getting enough healthy fats and they can, you know, they're, they're having trouble sleeping, their energy is poor. And so there's a lot of variables that can impact how quickly people are able to open up that window. Okay, good answer. So let's talk about what to eat in the eating window, (laughs) starting Mm -hmm. with what you recommend be eaten when breaking the fast. I've heard before bone broth is a good idea, Mm -hmm. something to satiate you so you're not Mm going to go for the junk. What, What would your answer be to that? First, how to break the fast. Yeah, well, and I think this is a little bit of experimentation again, and I I hate to keep saying that, but it really is dependent on the individual. Some people don't have the ability to have bone broth and then a meal an hour or two later because of their work schedules. But I I encourage people to really experiment. I mean, if you look at some of the data, some people encourage people to do bone broth and fermented foods first. Some people will say, I slide right into bacon and eggs. Really depends on how you feel after you eat. So uh, what I generally encourage people to do is to stick with lighter proteins. So if you're going to break your fast, lighter proteins, whether it's chicken or um, fish or shellfish or bone broth uh, or, you know, having a bone broth, uh, you know, there's lots of bone broth proteins that are out there. People say, I, I'm just not ready to, to chew up a meal. I want to just have something that's lighter. Sure. I think those are, are reasonable. Uh, I generally recommend that people do something that's lighter. So it's not the time to do something that's a very ha- fat heavy meal. And then, you know, maybe have something small and maybe two hours later, you know, really, you know, eating a larger meal, depending on what you like. You know, some people will say to me, I want to have, you know, full fat dairy yogurt with some uh, nuts and some berries. I'm like, great. Some people say, I love bone broth because it's warm and soothing. Fantastic. I personally break my fast. I love to have breakfast. And when I say breakfast, it really is lunch. But I would love to have like bacon and eggs and like some avocado. Like that's a, a meal that makes me really happy. You know, I feel satiated. I'm full. Sure. Uh, I don't feel like taking a nap afterwards. But it's all about, you know, doing a little bit of experimentation with yourself to find out what makes your body feel good. Do you feel like taking a nap afterwards? Then you probably have the wrong combination of protein, fat, and carbohydrates. We use the term macros. Um, I don't necessarily suggest people track those unless we're looking for specific you know, unless we're really saying, okay, how many grams of protein are you consuming in a day? That's really where we want to look. Uh, but I do find that protein and fats tend to be the most satiating or the ones that are more likely to keep people from having blood sugar instability and blood sugar dysregulation, which is a huge problem here in the U.S. for sure, just with all the carbohydrate heavy meals that people eat. So for someone who has not heard of intermittent fasting before, they may be wondering, okay, so you're saying I fast for 16 hours and then I eat for eight. So in that eight hours, am I just having 
two meals? How, like how many calories am I having? Am I having the equivalent of what the three meals would have been? Am I just snacking? Can you talk more about what to eat during the feeding window. <laughs> yeah. So again, it goes back to like some people have, you know, work schedules they have to work around. So they're, they're willing to have a meal like at lunchtime and a meal at dinner. And I remind people that you should have enough protein and fat in that meal that you shouldn't be hungry in between that freaks everybody out. They're like, you know, that's a very different than I'm eating every two to three hours kind of mindset. Sure. So you know, first and foremost, it's determining, you know, within your window, how much time do you have to eat? And I, I really want people to be hitting those protein numbers. And so protein numbers in terms of grams, ideally, if you weigh 120 pounds, I'm just using this as an example, you should be having 120 grams of protein a day. And I would guess more often than not, most women aren't anywhere close to that. Nope. So I remind them, let's reverse engineer your day. And so it may be that you're having you know, two good sized meals, maybe that's 80 grams of protein. And then you're going to have something called collagen peptides. You know, there's a brand vital proteins, not associated or affiliated with them, but you may need to have some collagen peptides in your water. They dissolve, they're tasteless. They're mm -hmm. not gritty to bump up your protein another 20 grams. And if you're right now only eating 60, it's going to be, it's going to take a while to get up to 120. So I think it's always dependent on your lifestyle, but also being cognizant of, you know, how you're going to get those, those, those proper macros in during your feeding window. And for a lot of people, it's a struggle. It can be a day where, you know, normally I'd be on the go in the afternoon. I might be going to a swim meet or I might be taking a kid to a, a practice and I may be missing a window of food. Sometimes you have to take things with you, which I'm not always a fan of eating in my car, but sometimes that does happen. So it's a little bit of acknowledging that every day may not look exactly the same. You may have a day where your feeding window is a little longer. Maybe you want to eat with your family and, and you get home late from work and you say to yourself, I'm going to you know, leave my feeding window open for another hour because I want to be able to eat with my family. There's no shame in that. And in fact, I would make the, the, the statement that our bodies are designed to adapt. So over time, we don't want to be rigid with our windows and we do better when we are flexible and we do better when we vary what we're doing. You know, if you think of what a hormetic stressor is, it's a stressor that has benefits to our body and it, our bodies are very smart and attuned. So if you do 16, eight, 16 hours fast with an eight hour feeding window every single day for the rest of your life, that's the adaptation has, has, you know, you're, you're not going to see the same gains over time. So I will say to people, you know, maybe one week you're going to do, or maybe for a few days you're going to do 8 and then maybe you're doing one 24-hour fast. Maybe you're doing a prolonged fast once a quarter. So to answer your question, I think it's really dependent on someone's schedule and what is feasible for them to do. And, and there are definitely tricks that you can do to scoot in, get in a little bit more of those macros, um, again, focusing on protein first by, you know, just acknowledging, being mindful. It doesn't mean measuring all your food. It doesn't mean you know, tracking every bit of food that goes into your mouth. In fact, I'm not a huge fan of doing that because I think it can lead to some degree of disordered relationships with food. But I do think that there's value in having an honest conversation with yourself and saying, you know, yesterday I really didn't get the right macros in. So today I'm going to make a much more conscientious effort. And it may be that maybe midway through your afternoon in order to get to your macros, your protein macros, as an example, you may have a snack in between. And, and I'm not normally a snacker per se, but it may be that you need to bump up your protein and the way to do that is, you know, maybe you're having some beef jerky, maybe you're having some macadamia nuts, maybe you're having like a clean protein bar. There, there are actually some of them that are fairly clean, but I'm also a realist and uh, recognize that not everyone's at their home 24 seven and can have ready accessibility to everything that they need. 
Sure. Very thorough answer there. To simplify this for patients who are maybe getting started again, it sounds like if you have an eight to five job, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you have a regular work schedule, that really you could fast after dinner, Mm -hmm. fast through morning, don't have breakfast, and then you would have two meals. You'd have lunch and dinner, which would be in your eating window. So that sounds very doable for patients, but I'm glad you brought up the concept of I think it's called hormesis. I'm not sure <laughs> exactly yeah. the, the word, the term. Um, but I, I was wondering what you do long term, since this has been a revelation that you have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had the, the benefits of intermittent fasting for years now. I was wondering if this is something that you believe should be done in select patients ongoing. Like with the ketogenic diet, I don't recommend anyone stay in ketosis forever. They should cycle in and out different mm-hmm. seasons. So is intermittent fasting something that you recommend should be done long term and then it sounds like i'll ask you a personal question are you doing are you stressing your body and doing a longer fast once a week or once a month is is that kind of what you recommend to your your patients I, well i think it depends so the answer so there's a couple uh, great questions um what i would say is for me personally i had a healthcare hiccup last year and lost 15 pounds, which was really challenging for me to go back to intermittent fasting so it took a while to be able to do that So yes, I'm a huge fan of variation, uh, meaning once you've got, and it's kind of like training wheels, once you got the training, you got the riding the bike with the training wheels, you take the training wheels off and then it's time to experiment a little bit. Sure. So I don't do the same fasting window every single day. In fact, uh, I believe that we as women in particular, um, and I, I don't mean to keep singling us out, but I think we're unique. You know, we're not many men. I think women have to be a little bit more savvy. And so when we're closer to our cycles, we have to be pretty deliberate about making sure we're not fasting for too long. Sure. We may need to uh, integrate more carbohydrates, you know, healthy carbs. We probably should benefit from doing, you know, even one 24-hour fast a month I think is great. I do that. I might do it every other week. Really depends on how I'm feeling. You know, yeah. sometimes, I, you know, especially coming off of, of all this COVID stuff, uh, I felt like I needed to do more variety because I was just getting bored. So I may have a six-hour window one day where I'm eating. I may have an eight-hour window. I had a feast day over the weekend, meaning I had a 12-hour feeding window. And a lot of that is so that we we tell our bodies that we're trying to continue to provide uh, variation so that it doesn't get lazy, much like you would not do the same workout program every single day for the rest of your life. Our bodies thrive on variety. And I think it's really, really critical that we acknowledge once we've got those training wheels on, once we're thriving, riding that bike, pull the training wheels off and experiment a little bit. And that could look very different for every person that's listening. Meaning, you know, I might, I have some patients who are like, they're like a duck to water. They go from 12 hours fasting fairly quickly to 18. And then they like experimenting. Maybe they're doing one meal a day. Uh, which is OMAD. Some of them want to do a 24-hour fast and they want to do, you know, a a 16-hour fast. And and they're varying it all the time, really dependent on how their body feels, you know, what their social and personal and professional responsibilities are. And the point that I think is really critical here is that you you can do it right just by varying your schedule. It's really being responsive to, you know, what your needs are. Again, cycling women in particular, a week before your period, you want to definitely be uh, mindful of your fasting windows, how many carbohydrates you're consuming. And then I feel like a lot of people get stuck in perimenopause and that's when they start to put on weight. They start getting discouraged, menopausal women. And there are definitely ways to integrate the strategy into those times in a woman's life as well. But you got to ratchet in on all the lifestyle stuff. That's, you know, we kind of get the get out of, get out of jail card 
kind of, you know, we get that in our 20s and 30s and then in our 40s and 50s and beyond, all of a sudden the lifestyle piece becomes absolutely critical if you want to have success. And that's where I see people getting stuck is that they're trying to force an outcome, really forcing an outcome. They want to lose weight. They're going to over-exercise. They're going to restrict their food intake. They're going to be mad and like wound up. And I just remind them, I'm like, sometimes we have to just surrender. You know, the whole concept, I always say, remember Shavasana, the end of a yoga class and Shavasana is like always my favorite pose uh, because it's, it's acknowledging that ultimately we have to surrender to the process. We can't mm-hmm. force an outcome. I get asked all the time, what's one product that I just can't live without when it comes to maintaining my own health and longevity? And my answer is something you've actually heard me mention on several episodes. It's called mitochondrial complex, and it's pretty much the Cadillac of multivitamins. And it's packed with antioxidants, including three key players, acetyl-L-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, and N-acetylcysteine. Think of a steam engine that requires coal to be continually shoveled into the furnace to power the train forward. Acetyl-L-carnitine does that for your body by shoveling short-chain fatty acids into your cells to provide your body with energy. This is an absolutely essential task to keeping you running. However, what's a byproduct of fire? You guessed it, smoke. Unfortunately, in this analogy, smoke from fire equals free radicals. To combat those free radicals, other antioxidants are needed, and that's where alpha-lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine come in. Together, they scavenge free radicals and help boost and recharge glutathione, the most potent antioxidant in the body. To top it off, mitochondrial complex also contains a little bit of green tea extract, broccoli seed extract with sulforaphane, and even resveratrol. Research has shown that when athletes and individuals that are under stress begin taking this product, they are less likely to get sick as they're giving their body what it needs to conquer those stressors. Who doesn't need protection from stress and cellular damage at this time? I certainly do. I take this product every day. If you're interested in learning more about how mitochondrial complex can help support you living a longer, healthier life, check out my blog post on why antioxidants are important found at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash why dash antioxidants dash are dash important or in chapter four of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. To get 10% off our mitochondrial complex, just use code ENERGY when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now, let's get back to the show. A couple other questions popped up while you were, were talking there. Does coffee or tea break the fast? You mentioned that you're having tea. Mm-hmm. Does that break the fasted state or not? So plain coffee and bitter tea. So we talk about green tea, black tea, et cetera. The ones that are not going to be all, you know, fruity and, and sweet uh, because we want to avoid consuming things that will spike an insulin response or evoke an insulin response. And think about the fact we can really subtle and ratchet into the nuances on this in particular, because sometimes people get paranoid to brush their teeth. And I always remind them, you know, you are not going to break your fast if you brush your teeth, but if you swallow copious amounts of toothpaste, you will. So When we talk about what we can consume during that fasted state, water, black coffee, bitter teas, we know that both coffee and bitter teas contain, uh, you know, ingredients that will actually induce uh, thermogenesis. They will enhance autophagy and really can suppress hunger cues. And so uh, I I encourage people to consume those things, obviously being sensitive, you're caffeine sensitive, find a decaffeinated alternative. But those are, are good things to consume while you're fasted. I find a lot of people get stuck uh, while they're fasting and then they're like, oh my gosh, I had two cups of green tea or I had a cup of coffee and then my hunger cues get, so, you know, they're just suppressed and I can power through my morning. And I just remind them just thinking about, you know, your insulin levels are low because you're not consuming any foods. Now you will see a lot of information about bulletproof coffee, MCT oil, 
fatty coffees. And I just want to be really crystal clear about this. If you're trying to lose weight, why would you add fat to a beverage? Like, why would you do that to yourself? Or if you say to me, like, my greatest joy in life is I love a fatty coffee, then do it during your feeding window. Don't run the risk of potentially, you know, impacting your ability to really tap into autophagy. I've seen you know, when I looked at research, it was one teaspoon of MCT oil. I don't know anyone who just uses that little of amount. That is the, the, the most MCT oil that you can consume during a fasted state when it won't break your fast. Uh, but I just remind people, if you're trying to lose weight, like most of my patients are, I'm like, just kick those things to the curb and, and focus. I'd rather you de- enjoy something during your feeding window. Sure. But a fatty coffee could be 250 calories. And I'm like, well, you're trying to be fasted. You're trying to lose weight. Why would you purposely consume something that is just going to give you like a little bit of a negative deficit in terms of your caloric intake for the day? Good answer. So I have not done a 24 hour fast and I I get nervous back to what you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the work responsibilities. We had talked before recording today that Mm -hmm. I had patients all day and now we're recording a show and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm go, go, go. I wonder, okay, could I do that and see patients all day? I don't know what these sort of responsibilities or would I want to do this sort of fast on the weekend when I'm not at work? Well, then maybe I'm going to be more, I don't say bored, but (laughs) bored and distracted and at home and going to want to eat. So I don't know when the best time would be to do that. Um, but do you feel like most professionals with similar, you know, work mm-hmm. schedules, you, you are, you have been one yourself, do okay if they work themselves into that and they, they adapt do. solely that, that it is, it is, uh, a goal that I can succeed on. <laughs> yes. And so what's interesting is, so last year when my, that second talk came out, I had a lot of intensivists. So, you know, doctors that are working in ICUs, who were so convinced they could not do this, like the limiting beliefs that they embraced. I kept saying, I want you to go slow and steady. And so I would walk some of them through it. And they're some of like my biggest supporters now. They're like, oh my gosh, like I worked all day or all overnight, 100% fasted. I was so sharp. I was so mentally alert. Um, So yes, you can. But I, I think to be fair, yes, if you were at work, working clinically, and fasted, it would be a lot easier because you're distracted because you're focused sure. on your patients. Sure. As opposed to when you're home, if you're home with your family and your children and the refrigerator's not all that far, it can and be a they're lot eating, more challenging. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more challenging. Like my kids know when I'm in a 24 hour fast, I always said the last couple hours are the hardest. So from like three to seven uh, PM for me personally, it's just the hardest, but I would say maybe start on a weekend, maybe do it with your husband. And maybe the thing to do is to start with a 16 hour fast master that gets to 18 hours, do 20, do 22. Right. And then, you know, jump off the cliff and do the 24. And what I find is people afterwards are like, that wasn't so bad. It's all, so much of it is mental. And, you know, especially with longer fasts, a lot of it is mental. Um, And, you know, you're getting to that point where you're like, okay, I can totally do this. I totally conquered that. I think you would be surprised. And then you probably would do it every once in a while and be fasted all day at work. And then just go home in the evening and have a light meal and go to bed and feel great. So a couple other questions, since I have a hormone clinic, I have to ask mm-hmm. about the impact of hormones when mm-hmm. you're intermittent fasting and specifically even growth hormones. So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So amongst many of the benefits of intermittent fasting, we know that when you are fasted, you spike human growth hormone. And, and for especially, I'm sure, do you work with men and women or just yeah. women? Yep. Yep. Both. Okay. Yep. So, so women in particular, we know human growth hormone, we want to keep stay as lean as we possibly can for as long as possible, humanly possible. And so we know it really spikes nicely, especially with those longer fasts. You get this human growth hormone spike, which makes it easier to maintain muscle mass, um, lean muscle mass, which is really critical. But what I remind people of is when we're thinking about hormones, which are these chemical messengers in the body, 
we're really talking about not just sex hormones because everyone always thinks about estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. And yes, men and women make both. It's not just, it's not unique to just one gender, but we think about thyroid hormone and we think about cortisol. And so what I find is it's a little bit of fine tuning. It's a little bit of intermittent fasting combined with the lifestyle pieces quality sleep, absolutely critical. If you really want to succeed with intermittent fasting, you have to be sleeping properly. Got to dial in in your stress. Um, the older you are, the more challenging. I see you smiling. Um, the older you are, the more challenging this can be for people. But if we really want to maximize this, it, you know, it also involves like the nutritional choices that we make. You know, we used to be very fat phobic and very cholesterol phobic. And I remind people that, you know, cholesterol is kind of the the mother hormone to all these sex hormones. So if we aren't consuming the proper amount of saturated fats, like we get from meat, um, from monounsaturated fats, from things like nuts and, and avocado, that can be hugely detrimental. But I do find for many people when they've got thyroid issues, and I think it's fairly common, I would say I, more often than not, uh, nearly every woman north of 40 ends up being underactive in terms of thyroid uh, so it could be, uh, you know, subclinical hypothyroidism or it could be Hashimoto's or uh, non-autoimmune Hashimoto's. I, I remind people, non-autoimmune hypothyroidism, I remind people that a lot of what, um, you know, benefits our, uh, our bodies when we're fasted is the impact on the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And there are some arguments to suggest that fasting can actually uh, help with mitochondrial um, health. And so, you know, it can also be beneficial for conversion of, um, you know, inactive to active thyroid hormone. Um, if you're getting proper sleep and dialing in on stress, it can help balance cortisol, which is a good hormone. I think people think of it as a bad hormone. It is a very good hormone, uh, but we're not being chased by rabid dogs, uh, you know, I, rabid dogs or rabid animals. A lot of the stress that we experience in our personal and professional lives, our body can't differentiate that. Uh, versus uh, baseline survivalistic mechanisms. So yes, I do believe that intermittent fasting along with uh, some of the other things I mentioned can help balance hormones in a very beneficial way. And, and I'm able to track that by using you know, very specific testing in my practice and kind of really dialing in on um, you know, things as simple as meditation and gratitude journaling and mm -hmm. not overdoing it with, and I hate to pick on the CrossFit community, I'm just using it as an example of super high intense exercise, you know, doing things like bar or yoga or Tai Chi versus doing CrossFit or ways that we can support our bodies or not doing this chronic cardio. We, we're a nation that's convinced that we have to go run marathons and we have to be doing really intense exercise um, all the time. And I just remind people, you know, things like high intensity interval training, is going to be, a, or Tabata is going to be a better bang for your buck. Um, as we're, you know, as we're aging in reverse, we want to just be mindful of that. But all of those strategies can have a really positive net impact on supporting our hormones and our bodies. But it all starts with, you know, making sure that we are dialing in on, on mindset, sleep, uh, stress management, nutrition, uh, you know, less eating and more fasting, all can be hugely beneficial. I'm smiling because these are things that I preach to my patients every day <laughs> and to myself, reducing stress and getting optimal sleep. And, and I was that CrossFit junkie. I was a gymnast growing up. So I was used to, well, the adrenaline junkie, almost mm -hmm. like you were saying, I was used to those mm -hmm. intense um, cardio uh, classes. However, yeah. I had very fast heart rate. I ended up with tachycardia really? and with your car cardiology background, mm -hmm. interestingly, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which was part from stress and 
not doing yoga and only doing high intensity (laughs) training. So I quit CrossFit, uh, but um, which I'm not, again, saying it's bad. There's a time and place. And I think I was already in a, my adrenals were shot. That was not a good fit for me. I needed yoga, not CrossFit. But cardiologists also never asked me what I was eating. And every time I'd have gluten, I'd have fast heart rate, right? So there's such a relationship between, well, even gut health and even heart health. And I'm going off on a tangent here, but um, I want to come back to a few more questions. So when should someone take their supplements when fasting? Great question. Depends on the supplement. That's the easiest answer. So if it's something like a mineral like magnesium, which I think most, if not all of us need, obviously, you know, my cardiology background, because I'm like, everyone is low in magnesium till proven otherwise. So magnesium is fine while fasted, but things like branched chain amino acids, um, collagen peptides, uh, fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin K should all be taken during a feeding window. And so I think a lot of people unknowingly will say to me, well, what am I going to do as my pre-workout for the gym? I'm like, coffee, tea. And they're like, no way. I'm like, oh yeah, way. It's like the best pre-workout. So the point being that a lot of these products that people are taking, they don't realize that they're actually breaking their fast. So think about it from this perspective. If you're taking a high quality supplement, that's not full of a bunch of junky fillers. um, Most of the minerals you can take. So selenium, magnesium, et cetera, you can take during a fasted state. In fact, I do that. Um, But I save things like Um, If I'm doing branched chain amino acids or creatine, or if I'm doing uh, vitamin D, I do that with my fat and with my feeding windows. And that's completely fine. You know, you're not going to mess things up. Um, Your body doesn't keep score and say to itself, well, I lifted at 7 a.m. So if I take the creatine and branched chain amino acids at two, I've somehow messed it up. No, no, that's not the way our bodies work. And so uh, unfortunately, we, there's kind of this gym bro mindset of I've got to take it immediately around my my workout. And I'm like, that's not the way our bodies work. They don't keep track that way. So I just encourage people to, you know, read the labels. And if they're, when you're in, if it's in doubt, take it during your feeding window, then you don't have to worry about it. I like that. This was very helpful. I, I think you gave us several tips to make our intermittent fasting more successful. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else that you want to share or do you have a special gift or promotion for our listeners? I have an anti-inflammatory ebook um, that has you know, recipes in it that we will be sharing with your listeners. And I find that, you know, when we're talking about inflammation in the body, although we didn't talk about it a ton, um, there are foods that are more inflammatory to our bodies than others. And so mm-hmm. I think about the big ones like gluten, grains, and dairy, like processed sugars, alcohol, soy. And so sometimes it's not until we take those things out of our diet that we realize that maybe the pain in our foot's gotten better or a knee or a hip or we have more energy. And so um, this is a a cookbook that we kind of put together that uh, we've gotten some really nice feedback on. So yes, that will be available for your listeners and hopefully they will find beneficial and helpful. I'm sure they will. I will post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Also tell us about your upcoming masterclass. Yeah, so I have an intermittent fasting masterclass, which I'm really excited about. And so it's a three week long program where I kind of dive into a lot of um, deeper uh, information on intermittent fasting, how to integrate it into your life, the things that can boost autophagy, there are foods that will do that, the things that can impact, um, you know, when we're cycling in our, you know, getting our cycles, um, strategies, I would say it's all my best tips and tricks to really be able to take this strategy and, you know, really run with it. And so that will be back in September, but 
um, definitely your listeners will have an opportunity to check it out as well. Awesome. Sounds like a wonderful resource. My last question for you is what would your top longevity tip be? And it's okay if you repeat something you've already said. What's your absolute top longevity tip? I think the most important thing of all is sleep. It's foundational to our health. Uh, I like to remind people that our brains are more active at night than they are during the day. I know people are surprised to hear that, but there's another really cool thing that goes on in our brains uh, called the lymphatic system. And so it requires so much energy and it's usually activated uh, within the first four hours of sleeping along with a spike in growth hormone that we were talking about earlier uh, that I feel like if you can dial in on sleep, if you can get your sleep just right, you can lose weight, you can thrive, you are able to build muscle, you are able to better balance your hormones. I just think sleep is absolutely positively non-negotiable. For anyone that's listening that thinks it's okay to get by to four to six hours of sleep, trust me when I tell you, I see a lot of people (laughs) crash and burn uh, because they just don't prioritize it or they go to bed with their iPad every night, they're not wearing blue blockers, you know, all the things that uh, really can make sleep you know, really, you want to be able to to thrive, um, irrespective of what age range you're in. And, and I think sleep is a great first step. So work on sleep first. I would say, get the sleep dialed in and you're capable of doing anything. Then you can start the intermittent fasting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. You're a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And I think our listeners will get a lot out of this episode. Plus, you have additional resources. So yes. thank you again today for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Intermittent fasting can assist with keeping insulin levels low and weight loss, but also in boosting growth hormone and in autophagy. I'd encourage you to give it a try. Start with that 12-hour eating window and 12 hours in a fasted state, and then slowly start adding more time onto the fasted window. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of Cynthia's resources and info on her upcoming masterclass. Her free anti-inflammatory diet ebook can be found at CynthiaThurlow.com forward slash thank you. And you can register right now through August 10th for her next intermittent fasting masterclass at CynthiaThurlow.com forward slash masterclass forward slash Dr. Gray. That's C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-T-H-U-R-L-O-W.com forward slash M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S forward slash D-R-G-R-A-Y. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, not only is the course 50% off, but you also get your first consult with me for free. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.